is the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zachary Elwood. This is a podcast aimed at better understanding other people and better understanding ourselves. You can learn more about it at behavior-podcast.com. On today's episode, I talk to Alan Crawley, who goes by the handle Sin Verba online. Sin Verba is Spanish for without words. He's got the website sinverba.com and has the Sin Verba handle on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Alan is an expert in nonverbal behavior. I'll give his experience in a little bit, but the reason I wanted to talk to him for the podcast is that I've had some great conversations with him recently about behavioral analysis and research. Alan is very well-read when it comes to behavior, and he's educated me about quite a few theories on behavior that I wasn't familiar with and books I wasn't familiar with. We also had some talks about my work on poker tells, and he got me thinking about some new ideas in that area. So that's just to say I've learned a lot from Alan just in the few talks we've had, and I appreciate his expertise and his passion, and I think you will too. Here's some information about Alan Crawley. He graduated with honors in psychology from the University of Salvador in Argentina. He has a diploma in nonverbal communication from Austral University in Argentina. He is the academic coordinator of the postgraduate course Analysis of Nonverbal Communication at Heritage University in the U.S., He was academic director of the 2021 online conference on nonverbal communication organized by the Behavior and Law Foundation of Spain. He's certified in Paul Ekman's facial action coding system. I could keep going, but you get the idea. He's done a lot of work in the behavior space. For more information about Alan, check out the entry for this episode on my site, behavior-podcast.com. One video I'll have linked from there is a great presentation from Alan on facial expressions. In our talk, Alan and I talk about why he initially became interested in studying behavior. We talk about the complexity of behavior and why it's perhaps similar in some ways to complex systems like weather. We talk about whether reading behavior is a science or an art. We talk about the validity of microexpressions. We talk about the practical benefits of improving our understanding of behavior, which can include connecting better with people and helping other people. And we talk about indicators that someone is a behavior bullshitter who's spreading bad and irresponsible ideas. Along the way, we talk about quite a few behavioral theories and specific behaviors. So it should be a fun talk for anyone interested in reading people better or just connecting better with people. Okay, here's Alan Crawley, a.k.a. Sin Verba. Hey, Alan, thanks for coming on. Thanks for the invitation. So maybe we could start with what has made you so interested in behavior? When I was a child and in my younger years at school, I felt that I was not good with communication. I especially had some rough time connecting with others. I found that psychology and behavior gave me an insight on what people were thinking or suggesting me information on how to connect with others. And once I started to study the subject, I started to see there are some good information and of course there's also bad information. But once you try to apply it, you can see enormous, fruitful ways in which you can use it based on your needs, on how specifically to connect with others. And that was the thing that motivated me. Well, surely the idea is that you can use behavior as a way to study animals like bear watching. This is something that Desmond Morris explained in his marvelous book, Man Watching 1977, that a bear watcher studies bears because... It's nice to see them, you want to understand them, but you don't use that knowledge to shoot them down. The same thing, it needs to be applied to nonverbal communication and trying to read others, but reading others is not reading them like a book. The book 
or the mind is not a book that can be read. That's that's too simple. Uh, we know that that's not the case. But you can use that behaviors, cues, and signals to try to understand better other people, to connect with them, and in a certain way, you are going to become more humble with our species and evolutionary uh, humility in the sense that we are animals and we have a lot of things in common with the animal kingdom, but also with other people from different cultures. So uh, to answer the question, the idea that basically I felt that I needed more tools to connect with people and nonverbal communication gave me that. That's interesting you say that because that's actually, I can relate a lot to that because I've always felt like I was, uh, you know, pretty, a bit on the autistic spectrum. Mm. I, I was never very good at connecting with others. Eye contact actually made me quite nervous as a child, and and then also combined with that, my parents had a lot of psychology books laying around the house, uh, just random psychology books. So those two things I felt like similar to your saying, they were ways to uh, try to understand other people better to help myself and to make sense of things that I felt were confusing about people, and then. Uh, with poker tells when it came to the poker behavior and poker tells work I did uh, part of that was also just feeling like I, I didn't understand people well in that aspect either. So I was like, I really want to dig into this and understand it better and maybe understand some things other people are, are kind of understanding on a more intuitive aspect and understand it more consciously and more intellectually. So yeah, that's interesting. You, you say that. I think we, we have that in common. Yeah. And there is a common thread that I have seen, you know, I have, um, I usually give classes to advanced students and people that already have written books on number of communication that give classes on the matter. Over 60 people with uh, university degrees, like masters on number of communication. And one of the common threads is that they have some um, vulnerability or deficiency on how to communicate. So I, and I also seen that there are of, of people with dyslexia uh, studying this field which seems to be that for many people, this is a tool that can be used to improve in a certain way uh, for their social and professional life and get some rewards with it, which I think this is very important for people that don't know that they can improve like their public speaking uh, skills or their ways in how to connect with their, their partner or how to talk more gently or tactful with your friends. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a skill that allows you to connect on another level with people, but you need to be, of course, uh, careful to the things you read and how you apply it because it's not so simple as a one-to-one -one correspondence or a, a simple way of using it because, because that way, and there are some research uh, on the matter, for instance, training police officers with uh, some non-validated methods or contents that it can worsen your skills to detect lies or worsen your skills to detect emotions. So you need to be careful on the content you consume on the matter. Yeah, I want to go back to what you said about the uh, Desmond Morris book, uh, People Watching, aka Man Watching was the original title. You, you shared that book with me. You told me about it and I started reading it. Yeah, it was a great introduction because like you were saying, people tend to focus on like kind of the exploitative aspect of understanding behavior. It's like, Oh, what can I, what can I use other people's behavior for in my job? Like sales or, you know, kind of like the pickup artist kind of line of stuff. Uh, how can I, how can I really use it? But he was talking about, and you were talking about too, the, uh, the fact that we can, you know, this is a very human thing and it, it actually helps us 
be more empathetic with other people and see, you know, see how we're similar to other people, understand them better, helps our human connections with other people. So I, I think that's a very important point because I think there, some people can, can perceive it as being like, oh, how, how are people going to use this? Uh, and, and it does often, you know, take that form too, where people do try to use it, like, like you were saying, mm -hmm. police training and such. But there is that other side of, you know, the same reason, like you were saying, people people like to watch animals and understand animals. It's, it's a similar thing, like feeling more connected with, uh, with nature, with humans. Yeah. I think it's a great point. So I was watching your, your video about facial expressions, which was a great video, um, for people that want to watch that. I think that's one of your few English language presentations. I could, I could be wrong, Indeed. That. but, uh, yeah, it was great. You, you talked about the nuance in that area and reviewed a lot of different ideas. And, you know, one of the things that stood out to me in that video was your were your points about why behavior, specifically facial expressions, but I think it applied to all behavior, your points about why it could be so tough to study. And maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about those those different aspects, those different factors that make it challenging to study. Well, first of all, listeners are already noting that English is not my first language, so I'm doing my best. I speak in Spanish. I give my classes in Spanish. You're doing great. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. The point of that talk, uh, I was invited by a, a famous semiotician, Paul Boussac. He's a marvelous researcher, a very insightful theorician of behavior, especially in the evolutionary sense of behavior. And um, what I'm trying to show with that video is the idea that we have been understanding wrongly the facial displays. I use the term facial expression, which is the most common, but the most certain or more precise way of describing them is display because expression uh, has the assumption that the person is uh, showing outside something that is feeling in the inside. But display, it's something you could act or pose, mm -hmm. which is a more um, correct way of framing the, this complexity. And there are a lot of reasons why it's impossible to simplify, hey, he's moving two or three muscles in the face, that's the facial expression, the universal facial expression of contempt or anger. The person is feeling angry at this moment. That's that's a simplification that's mm -hmm. wonderful for selling some softwares or books or simple ideas or courses. Mm -hmm. But we know for a fact that animal communication is much more complex than that since the 70s or the 80s. Why are we still using an outdated formula that it is not even useful for animals, but we think it's going to be useful for complex animals, which we are, uh, the humans, homo sapiens. Well, it is not. And one of those reasons is that the face uh, moves for many, many reasons. The face moves as a consequence of speech, but also when you're eating, when you are breathing, when you are talking, when you're feeling an emotion, of course, but also when you feel a cognition like confusion or doubt or which I argue surprise is also a cognition, but you also move your face based on the social messages you want to send, on the intentions you have, like being affiliative or not, or initiating a competition. You move your face based on your personality, not every person moves the face in the same way, and some traits of your personality are going to, uh, for instance, make some facial actions more probable. Like if you are not amicable, maybe you have your eyebrows frowning all the time. Mm -hmm. This is usually the case for people working and uh, for the law. 
If you are very amicable, maybe you smile a lot. And that has a relationship not with the emotion you're feeling at that moment, but with your personality traits or as a result of your profession. So simplifying the idea that if you see some facial muscles moving, you can know the emotion of that person at a given moment is a way of understanding very wrongly and simplifying such a complex thing that behavior is for humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was it was such a great point because it, it gets into sometimes you see kind of the behavior bullshit kind of people, the people that take these simplistic views and try to get clicks for them. They focus on these kind of simplistic ideas of uh oh, they're you can see in their face this this emotion they're they're presenting or or you know, trying to hide from us, but it's leaving out the tremendous complexity, like you say. It's like we don't just leak emotions from our face that we're feeling, we use it to consciously communicate to other people in various ways. Uh, one thing that comes to mind that often gets a lot of press is the, uh, or a lot of attention is that face that they'll show, you know, it's kind of like the sad and um, ashamed kind of face that you'll see politicians make when they're announcing something, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like the, the lip pressed together uh, face that the politicians often make or leaders make anybody makes when they're ashamed and they're like doing a, a press conference, you know, and the people will say like, look at all these, ways that they're, you know, this common uh, expression of, of shame or whatever. And, and what, I think that what that leaves out is like, it's a it's a conscious expression that they're choosing because that's something that we all know what, what it means. So they're like consciously choosing to put it on, you know, in, in, in the same way that a lot of the things that people interpret in various beha- videos about people's behavior, it's like, well, it could be, you know, some sort of leak of emotion, sure, but it could also be that there's reasons some, sometimes that you want to communicate, you know, frustration with someone else or anger or shame or, or whatever the communication is. And, and so it becomes really muddy to try to determine th- these things. A note here, if you're curious what facial expression I'm talking about here, there's a New York Times article from 2011 called That Look, That Wiener Spitzer Clinton Look. To quote from that piece, the names may change, but the face remains essentially the same. Politician after politician and scandal after scandal faces the camera with his lips pursed and pulled tight, narrowing them. The chin boss, the fleshy bump above the chin bone, is pushed upward, pulling the lips into an upside-down smile. Add a downward cast gaze, perhaps a shake of the head, and instant disgraced poll. End quote. In that article and in other pieces, you'll find people with various interpretations about how revealing that look is. That it, for example, reveals disgust, sadness, even anger that it tells us something about how they're really feeling. But the point I was trying to make here, probably not very well, is that it's also just an understandable face one might make to try to communicate to the public that one feels bad. One wants to communicate some sadness, some shame, and that one is upset with the situation. And maybe in trying to communicate these concepts, there's some aspects of phoniness about the expression that make it a common one from politicians and leaders in these situations. I was just trying to draw attention to how sometimes people will act like a behavior is revealing something deep and secret about someone, when in fact there can be a lot of elements of understandable conscious communication involved or other complexity. Okay, back to the talk. Very much in the poker tells realm too. I mean, there's the reason it's so hard to uh, figure out poker tells is because somebody could be uh, consciously doing something and trying to trick you, or they could be, you know, actually leaking some sort of tell of what their attention, you know, where their attention is or, you know, how they're actually feeling. So yeah, it's just tremendously complex. And, and uh, I think you made great points in that, that video. 
And your, your example is very revealing uh, because I know the literature on the self-conscious emotions uh, like pride, shame, uh, embarrassment, humiliation. And uh, I know for a fact that there is no uh, universal sign of shame. There has been only just one study that has found some relationship between feeling shameful and a certain movements, which one of those was uh, grabbing your neck. A small note here. Alan wanted me to point out that he meant to refer to the research on guilt here, not on shame. He was referencing a 2020 paper titled, Are There Nonverbal Signals of Guilt? In which they found some actions that were more frequent when someone was categorized as guilty like frowning and self-soothing behaviors. Okay, back to the interview. But the relationship between its appearance and uh, really feeling shame was, uh, was low. It was not like, okay, everyone's feeling shameful in this experiment is doing this. No, I think it was two out of 10 or four out of 10, which is the case usually with behavior, the sense that you cannot expect that a certain state is going to produce in all the people the same behaviors at a given situation, at a given moment, for different personalities. It, it, that's nonsense. We need to understand this complexity and find a way to change the, the, um, the way we frame behaviors. I was thinking about this. Like, I think that it's usually useful for readers to accumulate knowledge in the sense of vocabulary. When you have more vocabulary, you can read more books and you can understand uh, more complex complex things. So in overall communication, you need to improve your mental dictionary, which is not a dictionary, it's an encyclopedia encyclopedia of gestures. You need to collect them, not necessarily with specific meanings, but you need to know about a lot of different behaviors and see them in different scenarios. But, and this is a huge but, knowing a lot about words doesn't mean that you can understand how they interact in different syntaxes, grammatics, and pragmatics. The same is true with behaviors. You can know a lot about them, but maybe you don't know how they unravel or interact in interactions. So one of the problems with this is that it is not the only way to improve your observational skills and interpretation skills of behavior to have a lot of tells or a lot of gestures mm -hmm. on your mental recollection, your mental encyclopedia. I, I have a right to the conclusion that maybe, and this is my idea, I haven't seen it in any case, in any way, in any place, that maybe we need to change the way we think about gestures. So usually when someone hears someone out, like here, when I hear you speaking, Zach, I'm asking myself, what does Zach means with those words? And that way of framing it means that you have one meaning that you are expressing one thing to me and I'm trying to understand what are you telling me. But using this formula that's useful for language, it's not the same when you use it for what is usually called body language. But we know it's not a language because it has no syntax and other properties that language should have. So applying this same mental formula or mental equation is not going to give you the best benefits. I argue that we need to change that framing and ask a different question. And before I tell you the equation, I'm going to explain how I, I got into that, or at least what is the correct way of, to think about gestures. And I think the best model comes from meteorology, uh, the prediction of weather. Meteorology as behavior has a lot of factors of influence 
in the case of behavior, culture, biology, personality, uh, sex, biological sex, gender, sexual orientation, situation, context, profession, and a lot of things more. And meteorology is subdued to a lot of also complex factors of influence that are constantly changing. So we need to have a specific set of mind in which we approach such nonlinear complex problems. And I think that the way to frame it is to think when you see a gesture, instead of framing it like, what does it mean? You need to frame it in a way which is very subtle, but it's different, which is what's the probable meaning of that gesture? And when you do this, you are changing it in a way that you're asking yourself, okay, there are probably more than one meaning. Probably I'm going to miss some of it, or maybe I can't know the meaning, but I'm doing my best to probabilistically infer what could it mean. And that's the approach I think it's most useful to understand this, which is very, very complex. And let me say one more thing on this. Probability and possibility are not the same. You know, um, I have been reading the book of uh, Michael Shermer, the skeptic, uh, the creator of the, the Skeptics magazine, and he explains this much better than me, but I, I will do my best. But he says, for instance, that someone could believe, for instance, and uh, it's, this is also mentioned in the uh, Massimo Pigliucci book, uh, Nonsense on Stilts. You could believe that the 9-11 was an inside job. There's a possibility that that was the case. But based on all the evidence that exists, the most probable explanation is that it was a terrorist attack. There's always a possibility of the existence of intelligence in the universe. But given all the information we have and the probabilities, maybe it's useful to think otherwise. I'm not trying to frame it in such a way as to give a, an answer for conspiracies or intelligence. I'm trying to explain that when you see a behavior, there's a probability that it can mean anything. For instance, if you see someone uh, feeling pain, there's a, a huge probability, based on the literature, uh, a review article from Kunz, that there are certain facial actions that are more frequent, like frowning, like raising the upper lip, wrinkling the, uh, the nose, or opening your mouth. So those action, facial actions are much more frequent than others. And when you're seeing someone in pain, those are going to be more probable expressions. There's a possibility of someone making a yawn when in pain or someone scratching their nose when in pain. Yes, there's a possibility, yes. What's more probable? The first, the former. So I think that once we try to frame gestures or behaviors in a different way as to understand they are probabilistically related to their meaning, you understand the three complexities of this matter. I know there are three, but there could be more. So these are the three. Gestures are polysemic. A given gesture may have multiple meanings, except from the famous emblems like saying okay or saying that someone is crazy moving your index finger in your forehead. Most of the gestures are polysemic. They can mean one thing, two things at a given moment, and sometimes they have no meaning. They're just noise. Secondly, Behaviors are polycausal, multicausal. They can be caused by several things at a given moment, not just one. For instance, you smile because you want to show your friend you are happy at his birthday, or you want to show that the friends of his work are 
kind or that you want to show him that, hey, I enjoy being around them. And also, behaviors are multipurpose. You could smile to show, hey, that joke is funny or I enjoy spending time with you. And sometimes a gesture has no uh, foreseeable purpose. So when you, you understand that behaviors are polysemic, multicultural, and multipurpose, you need to change the way you approach to them with the simplistic idea that a certain behavior has a specific meaning. That's, that's nonsense. That's nonsense on stilts. Would you agree that a big part of the problem is that I think that people are just generally bad at thinking in probabilistic terms or thinking about statistics? You know, it's like people really want there to be certain meanings for things. I mean, I see that in, in the poker tells realm where a lot of people will be like, well, you know, cause I, I'll go into a lot of nuance in my books. So, well, this could mean that, but then often it won't, you know, it's, it, could, mm. or it could mean two different things depending on the situation. And what I've seen is, you know, a lot of people just really want simple answers. And I think that maps over to the people who like to follow these kind of simplistic behavior analysis, people who really want these kind of simplistic interpretations. You know, one that comes to mind is, you know, this, this simplistic idea that, oh, if somebody is uh, like slightly tilting their body away from you, it, it means they're not interested in the conversation. Or if they're crossing their arms, they're not, you know, mm -hmm. they're kind of not interested in the, the conversation or being a little bit aloof. And, and, and of course, you know, there could be many reasons why people do those things, but it, you'll see people kind of take these simplistic ideas and just run with them. And it really, I think those things really get in the way of they're actually hurting their 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 uh, ability to connect with other people or understand their behavior because they're trying to take these simplistic ideas as opposed to thinking of them in terms of like you're saying you know like sure there you know there, there's a chance that this could mean that and there but there's going to be many other factors that you have to take into account and, and I think that's a that's probably a big part of it and also the reason why you know kind of simplistic people who take some teach simplistic ideas about behavior or anything, you know, really find an audience because people really do crave these simplistic, like this means that kind of, you know, cause mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's definitely an audience in a, in a market for it. Basically uh, people don't like, people don't like the, uh, the subtlety and the nuance, you know, they, they just want, Hey, give me an answer. You'll now be hearing an ad. I don't endorse these ads and I encourage you to remain skeptical of all ads. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. You know, I think you nailed it, nailed it in at least two, two points. The first one, I have heard Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, talking about this, that uh, we are bad at, at statistics. And one, one reason is that uh, algebra or uh, geometry were created uh, with the Greeks. And statistics is a much more uh, new creation of our way of approaching knowledge. And uh, I don't know if it was the 19th or 18th century, but it is really, really new in comparison with other approaches to, to, to meaning. So we are not good to understand statistics and we have not evolved to see the world through probabilities in such a way. And secondly, 
I agree that uh, people are thirsty of uh, this knowledge and trying to read the mind of others and uh, consume this idea of body language, which is fine. Uh, it's it's very interesting. It's curious. The problem is there is two problems. One, which is people that uh, use uh, dubious knowledge and use it in such a way to uh, commercially uh, usufructuating. I don't know. It's like using their eating their advantage to sell courses, you know, and be popular. But I am a wrong. I am a young researcher. I'm I'm starting. I am at the Universidad del Salvador here in Argentina. And uh, I think that researchers, we have also some uh, responsibility because it is not often to see one of the researchers going to the TV or uh, to documentals and explaining why uh, the scientific approach to behavior is not the way to do it. So in that sense, I think that as Carl Sagan uh, approach uh, to the science and science, we have the responsibility, the ethical responsibility of defending the science. And if you see someone doing uh, things with uh, considered uh, wrong or saying things that contradict the literature, you should call them out because that's your responsibility. And it's often the case that um, maybe because of uh, status or trying to avoid, avoid such interactions or because uh, researchers are not so much prepared to appear in the media as these pseudo-experts, they prefer not to do it. And I think that we have some sense of responsibility over that. It's, mm. it's not only the case that this pseudoscience is proliferating, which is, which is really, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. as a result of uh, malapraxis, uh, doing it wrongly, but also there's responsibility of the people that are doing the research and should speak out more often. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there is that there is that sense. I mean, I've talked to people who have told me that you know that they they said they just didn't want to get involved in these kind of online drama fights of of like calling out people. You know, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah, that, there's a reason people don't do it. But you're, I think you're right. It's like the more we let that stuff, you know, that kind of thing slide, the more people do it. You know, it's they're they're, they're calling people out. It, it may be tough and it may be kind of emotionally draining because you get attention and you get. You know, the, the, the uh, potentially the, the hordes of the other people's fans, you know, uh, insulting you or whatever it is. But I think I think you're right. There is a there is a responsibility there because the reason those people are able to do that so easily is, is simply because people don't call them out. Um, and I think it's the same. I focus on, you know, political polarization on this podcast. A lot. I, think, I think it maps over mm. to the uh, a lot of people just don't like to call out bad behavior of people on their side, you know, and there's this kind of it's it's different it's different factors at work, but I think there is a, I, I think there's benefit in seeing the value in in why it's helpful to call out bad and divisive behavior and untrue, inaccurate framings on your side because those things it's not just the benefit of calling out and making your side better it's the fact that the bad divisive framings on your side affect the other side and so on and so on it's all connected. So in the same way, I think this is it's all connected in the sense that when people who are knowledgeable don't call out call out the the bullshitters. They're just more involved, and that, that's what leads to the, the bullshit having such prominence. Yeah, I think it's all connected. Yeah. Mm. I don't know if I've enjoyed it, but I try to do it through my uh, social media and trying to help people to avoid experiencing what I experienced. I had good and very awful teachers because I had no one to, to guide me into, hey, you should read these books because they have bases. They, this is an author that has studied this, that this is a researcher doing that. And 
several cases, I read books which were not good and they didn't help me. They even created me some uh, nonsense ideas on how behavior worked. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to uh, discover that, hey, that that's not that's not good. That's that's not helping. I'm even understanding worse people because of this or because of that supposedly expert that was teaching me this. So mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do with my students or also with my colleagues, because I train other colleagues, is to help them uh, follow a path that doesn't need to uh, uh, learn with uh, those mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, learning from my mistakes so that they could follow a better path than mine. Well, and there, there and there's such real cost to this this bullshit, you know, of all sorts, like the pseudoscience and the bullshit of all sorts. But I mean, specifically in the behavior space, the fact that you can have people that will watch something like, you know, Jack Brown stuff, who I've often talked about and written a piece about. He's he's popular on Twitter, and his takes are just so clearly bad and exaggerated, and just not based on any. You know anything any any respectable behavior researcher would would agree with, but you, he's filling people's heads with the idea that they can confidently tell when people are lying or not. And what really happens in practice is just that people are just applying their own biases. You know, they're they're taking Jack Brown's ideas and just if they see somebody they don't like in the media, they'll be like, you know, they're just filtering it through that thing where they're like, oh, they did this behavior. I know they're lying. I saw that on Jack Brown's videos. You know, it, it's just this. And so it's it's kind of it's really amplifying the kind of misinformation problem in our society, the polarization problem, where people are just using these bad ideas to like reinforce whatever you know the nine eleven conspiracy theories or, or whatever whatever would have you. Mm -hmm. it, it's these ideas that we can know things certainly about the world, and we really we can't in so many ways in so many domains. We can't you know there's so much complexity. So it's just these confident takes that are really just amplifying our. Uh, the, you know, our problems because certainty, the idea that we can have, you know, quick certainty about things is, is to me, one of the biggest human problems. You know, we, we really have a problem embracing uncertainty and humility and, and taking it slow. You know, we like to jump to conclusions, et cetera, et cetera. You'll now be hearing an ad. I don't endorse these ads and I encourage you to remain skeptical of all ads. Did you know that you can change what you taste by what you hear? How can you use sound to make a deeper connection with your clients? Can we be healed with sound? Sound influences people in their buying decisions and their daily lives. In the podcast Audio Branding, I explore all of this, both with my own observations as a voice actor of over 15 years and by interviewing knowledgeable professionals in the field of advertising, marketing, music, and science. To have a listen for yourself, visit audiobrandingpodcast.com. The case of Jack uh, Brown, it's interesting because I, I followed his uh, his blog uh, six or seven years ago. And I was thinking that he had some, oh, that's an interesting comment. How, where that information came, where that's, uh, what's the foundation for that interesting observation? And I've tried to reach him and ask him for the, the evidence, which is something I uh, tell people to do. If you are not sure, if you uh, don't understand ask for the evidence because mm -hmm. usually it is the case that the people that has the evidence will share it with you and the ones that don't have the evidence or if they have it is used in a such a way that is not the way it was presented presented originally you're going right. to be able to better discriminate who is using this in a professional certified or validated way and who is not 
That's that's one case. And uh, I think that if these uh, pseudo experts present themselves as commentators, that would be better. Instead of uh, using a costume of science when they are not being scientific, if they present themselves, okay, I'm a commentator and mention some comments on behavior based on my opinion and my subjective perspective. This is mm-hmm. why I think this is a kind of art I can do. That would be more respectable because they are saying they are saying what they think. But when they say they are certain uh, that there is physical evidence that if that pupil dilatation means something and that raising of one eyebrow, that's a certain message of doubt. That that is a wrong way to proceed, and you are disguising it as science or as a certainty, and that's that's not that's not real. It could be because of ignorance. Or it's most usually the case that they don't know really how it works and what are the evidence and the literature. That's what I think. But some of them could be doing it, and I don't know, uh, with other uh, intentions, uh, deliberately using it to uh, have more power and influence. I don't know. I don't want to judge. What I do want to say is that, please, people, be a skeptics, not only from every supposedly or allegedly expert but it's on TV, on social media, even by my words. Be a skeptic mm-hmm. of what I'm saying. And if you want more information, ask me or look it on the internet right. because that's the way to think scientifically. Science is less a body of knowledge and more a way of thinking, an attitude of approaching to empirical evidence, to being able to reframe your theories, to change your mind based on the evidence. Most of these pseudoscientifics don't change their mind when they are presented with hugely contradictory evidence and when you do that you are being you're using ideology not science yeah i think that's a great point if if we were going to make like a, a list of signs that someone is a is a bullshitter you know one of the top things would be the fact that they can't really engage with critics you know they they they're unwilling mm. to that and that comes up with you know with the, that happened with jack brown if anyone even like respectful respectfully tries to get him to you know, engage in like, or, or criticizes a take of his, he'll just block them, you know? And I think that's a, that's a good example of when someone's just yeah. not even willing to, you know, talk through like, Hey, maybe you have some valid points about your criticism and, or, or here's, here's a defense of, of why I said this and the, and the back, the literature or the experience I had that, you know, supports this. But uh, yeah, I think that's, so I think that's one of the top signs is just not being able to engage with criticism and that maps over to like kind of cult like mentality where, Cult leaders just mm. can't engage in, you know, well-meaning and uh, criticism and, and, and challenges. Uh, and then the other thing I would say is, you know, if they were making a list of that kind of thing is they just they just have way too many takes on things. You know, it's like you watch some of these behavior people and they're just like saying something like almost every second about behavior. And it's like, yeah, uh, there's there's just there's not that much there. I mean, sure, you know, you might have and I think it comes back to like what you were saying about being very humble and being like, well, you know, there's a chance this could mean that, but you know, what you often see is, oh, this means that. And here's another thing. And, you know, a few seconds later that, that reinforces this idea, you know, it's like, it's just way too much certainty and just way too much to say. And I'm curious, would you, would you agree with that too? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I have some indicators, some cues I use to help people to discriminate fast, who is uh, uh, not doing this properly. And one of those things is, is that when they defend themselves, uh, they they say the words like oh this is science no no, no. I, I know for a fact that that smile is authentic it's science <laughs> no it's not 
And uh, there's a, a very nice quote from Chef Thompson, a police officer from New York. I read uh, his thesis, uh, his PhD thesis on mediation and nonverbal communication. Very interesting one. And he says that nonverbal communication is a science for many, many reasons. Uh, I didn't want to expand myself too much, but there are at least 30,000 articles published in at least 297 different journals, academic journals. But he says that nonverbal communication is a science, but when it is applied, it would, it will always remain an art. And that's a specific point we need to address. So if people say they're doing science when they are, in fact, making interpretations of behavior, they're not recognizing a biological pattern that has a specific one-to-one correspondence with meaning. That's nonsense. Behaviors are related with meaning in a probabilistical fashion, realistical way. You cannot do this one-to-one correspondence except maybe with uh, reflexes, uh, the knee jerk, you know, something like that, or the physiology, the pupil dilatation. But even the pupil dilatation may be a response uh, based on interest, sexual attraction, uh, cognitive load, being deceptive. Um, There are a lot of reasons considering difficult uh, choices. So that's not the case. So if someone defends his interpretation as this is science, okay, turn the bullshit alarm and try to look for more information. The second one is when they present themselves or their uh, courses or information with the 93% of all communication is nonverbal. Mm. That's that's a huge red flag, mostly yeah. used for uh, rookies in the, in the field uh, because that's a formula that came, comes from the, the 60s by Albert Mehravian, a psycho- um, an engineer turned psychologist, which is very, very interesting, but the formula has nothing to do with how communication really works uh, out of the laboratory. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's that's the wrong way to proceed. Yeah, I have one, just one more, uh, which is the, the, um, the presentation of microexpressions as a religion, as a faith that oh, this will save your career, detect microexpressions and improve your life. No, that's that's not. You know, microexpressions were discovered in the 60s, not by Ekman, by two psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, Hagar and Isaacs, and they named them uh, micromomentary facial expressions, I think it was. And uh, at the onset, uh, when they were discovered, they were not thought as expressing specific emotions as they is, as it is today. And the first uh, scientific uh, re- revised studies, or review studies, sorry, on the matter were published uh, this century. And most of the studies shows that they are not frequent. They tend to appear in honest and uh, liars, which was not thought before that study. Um, they don't help you to discriminate better uh, lies, there's a couple of studies on that. I think one is from Judy Burgoon or Jordan uh, and colleagues. And uh, usually microexpressions are presented as something you need to discover because it g- it's going to show you uh, certainly that a person is feeling an emotion is trying to conceal it. Well, I don't think that's the case. I think that the evidence is more nuanced to that. And it shows that that usually they don't last so brief as they thought they were, like in a paper from Matsumoto a couple of years ago, he changed the duration because uh, it was conceived uh, one twenty fourth uh, 
part of a second mm -hmm. and the facial muscles don't even move so fast. They move mm -hmm. fast, not so fast. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is that when someone presents microexpressions as a, a direct relationship with meaning or emotions, uh, be a skeptic because usually, and this is seen, this you can see this uh, in animals, animals can also perform micro gestures, micro movements, uh, very, very uh, brief, but are not directly correlated with a specific emotion. Why do animals do this? And this is an observation from Alan Friedland, which I think is one of the possibly the the biggest or the, the best expert on facial displays. And he argues that microexpressions of these uh, movements show conflict mm. for that person or for the animal. It's a moment of conflict between I need to attack or I need to flee. Uh, maybe I should tell these people what I, what I think about the subject or maybe I should keep it mm. to myself. But if there is no conflict, for instance, and this is something I have read from Alan, which is, I think it's not not published yet, but if you think about um, a serial killer, maybe that person speaking about the the assassinations, there is no conflict at all. Why is going to show a microexpression if there's no conflict? So instead of thinking that microexpressions are uh, emotions, maybe we should reframe it and think about maybe it's more general and they express as what it was introduced by Hagar and Isaacs, and it's more developed by Friedland, moments of conflict. They could also mean one more thing. Uh, they could be somehow like balloon trials, in which a person shows you something briefly to test if you are going to be able or fond or open to discuss something about what is going on. And that if that trial balloon doesn't work, the person doesn't uh, proceed with the path of revealing certain information. And if it works, maybe that person opens. But the uh, simplistic idea that microexpressions reveal emotions, uh, it's too simple. And we know for a fact behavior is much more complex than that. And even the evidence of microexpression attenuates and discard this simplistic approach. But we are still using it for several reasons. And I will tell you at least one, which is explained in a book uh, it's called the Atlas of AI. In a chapter, I think it's chapter six, but I'm, I don't know. Um, uh, the author explains that at the moment, the the, um, the market for facial softwares is worth, I think it's seventeen billion dollars, which is an amount too <laughs> too big for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's enormous uh, to think about it, and uh, most, if not all, ninety something percent of the softwares are based on the basic emotional theory, the theory that explains that there are five, six, or seven universal facial expressions with a specific archetype, a prototype of the face, which I argue, and a lot of authors argue, I think Augusta Gaspar from Portugal says this, that those are not prototypes, are in fact stereotypes on how the face should uh, show an emotion. Mm. Mm -hmm. So a stereotype is not a prototype. It's not the same. Mm -hmm. And the, the huge problem is that if you remove this theory, uh, it's not like uh, cutting a part of a web and trying to uh, solve the problem. You are stealing or you're taking a brick from the lower or the lowest part of the building and it's going to collapse. Mm. So there is some uh, uh, economical or financial uh, need to think that this theory is working. There are a lot of courses around it also and certifications that if uh, this was 
or this was uh, or could be put into doubt, uh, it could be kind of difficult. So there is no not much motivation to say mm, that this is not working properly as, as it did not work properly in the spot program, for instance, in the United States. It was applied uh, a specific program program into detecting cues uh, uh, on the airports. At least I think there were 100 airports in, in America. What a beautiful country. I love it. Uh, and uh, it didn't work. The idea of recognizing microexpressions to first to detect uh, terrorists, because uh, <laughs> that was not the case, but even smugglers, even uh, criminals, it didn't work. So uh, the evidence is staggering against the simplistic idea of using the face as a window to the emotions or the soul or the, the thoughts of the person. It's much more complex and nuanced, you know? People often ask me about micro-expressions in the poker realm. And, mm, you know, yeah. I, I always say, you know, I, I, I think it's a good example, actually, because I don't, I've never found any real value in micro-expressions, specifically in the idea that micro-expressions are are leaking genuine emotion. If anything, it's that people sometimes, you know, often reverse it. These small expressions are, are the opposite of what they actually feel because they're trying to do some something kind of deceptive or or even kind of unconsciously deceptive because poker is just such a, your, your natural instinct is to reverse what you have and that's just an instinct. Uh, but the thing that strikes me there is I think people, you know, people in general are actually when they want to be, they're actually very good at not showing you things. You know, they're they're very good at being unreadable when they want to be unreadable. And I think what happens, and maybe it's a factor in some of these studies that show, you know, leakages of emotions in, in various ways. I think sometimes people just are willing to give away something, you know, in a, in a, in a way that communicates uh, information to other people. They're sometimes just willing to to give away things, and, and that could be the situation isn't that stressful, so they don't mind leaking mm. a little bit of genuine emotion, you know, and I think, uh, I think when it comes to that idea that people are going to be leaking genuine emotion, I, I think it just underestimates how good people can be uh, at, at restraining their, you know, facial expressions. A small note here, just to clarify that I was talking about micro expressions specifically, not the idea that we can have other more macro leaks of genuine emotion. I think there are all sorts of ways we can accidentally leak emotion when we don't want to. Okay. Back to the talk. I think there, there can be an an exaggerated idea that, oh, I'm going to catch this person doing something and, and it's going to tell me what their, their state is, you know. And there are two other things uh, that I agree with that. Uh, the first one is that uh, when someone's trying to teach you, like, no one's going to lie you again. And uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's, you're not going to be <laughs> able to do that. And some people uh, name themselves as the human lie detector or the human polygraph, which is it's just <laughs> impressive. It's just impressive. It gets back to the idea that it, Believing such things actually sets you up for more failure because if you believe that you've got the tools to prevent being, you know, being lied to or catch, catching people lies and you believe in these kind of simplistic ideas like that, that actually makes you more susceptible to being fooled because you think of yourself as a, as a strong lie detector hmm. or something. Yeah. You know? And, you know, uh, credulity is a prerequisite uh, to follow these people. And I, I was credible. Uh, I was uh, 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 gullible in a sense when I started and I, I want and people want to learn this and you want to believe that the other person is teaching you the best of knowledge and you don't know how to judge an expert and this was a question this was uh, it was explained by Massimo Pigliucci in his book uh, that Aristotle one asked himself well one 
can know for a fact if that clinician is in fact a good doctor or is a quack? How can you know? And the the final answer seems to be that it's very, very difficult. And you can you can only judge if someone is an expert if you are also an expert in that field. So it's impossible to be an expert in many, many fields in life. So you need to trust to, mm -hmm. to a lot of people, to the credentials, to their assertiveness, to the way they express themselves. But you also have to follow some um, um, guidelines like uh, we uh, have been trying to give uh, your listeners some tools to be able to better discriminate. Hey, there's something here I should take more uh, into consideration or maybe I should be more skeptic of this kind of affirmations and arguments. Uh, but for a fact, uh, I will argue that it's very, very difficult if you want to start to study this uh, this field to grasp quickly uh, who is doing the things correctly and who is using content in such a way at, that it is disguising it as science, but is clearly doing pseudoscience. And that's that's dangerous. Pseudoscience has a lot of uh, uh, consequences. Sometimes when it is related to, usually to, to medicine, uh, it can bring you to death. And in, it's, an, it's an extreme. In our field, it can bring uh, injustice. It could bring uh, uh, suspects being uh, not believed, being maltreated uh, in the wrong way, being stopped in the street, uh, or doubting a witness from, uh, based on a gesture or a micro-expression. And that's huge in the future. If we allow these kind of pseudo-experts to say this, these things, uh, helping the law or in trials, it could have huge impact for the people's life. So I think we, we need to be really careful in how we uh, apply nonverbal communication. But it is a very, very useful tool and skill that you can develop in two senses. I, I understand that uh, my friend and colleague, uh, a mentor in a certain kind of way, uh, is someone that, which I have read over the years and I respect a lot, Ronald Riggio. Uh, he's an expert on nonverbal communication and leadership. He he explains that there are three skills in nonverbal communication: uh, ex expressing, uh, perceiving. I'm using another words to eat, uh, to to saying it more more easily. And control. I would argue that it it could be summed up in two skills for us, for the, the lay audience, and how to apply it in being able to express yourself better with behaviors like understanding how to change your tone of voice, your fluency, your speed, your rate of speech, and also your postures, your way of expressing yourself. I'm doing gestures to nothing at the moment, to a couple of screens, but no one is seeing me. But I know for a fact that I, if I keep moving my hands in such a way, I'm helping me remember some words. I am emphasizing better uh, with my voice. And the other skill is called... Um, it has many uh, ways of naming it. Interpersonal precision is the most agreed in the field, which is the skill of inferring correctly, if there is a correct interpretation, for meanings. And you could interpret that a gesture is related to an emotion, given uh, fear, for instance. It could be an interpretation of what someone is thinking at the moment, like I is thinking about leaving this uh, situation. He's thinking that his couple is... Um, wrong in this debate or argument. And there are, there are a lot of things you could infer. And it's a skill that we need to develop, I will argue, but in a probabilistical fashion. 
not with this kind of diction, mental dictionary with a specific behavior and a specific one or two or three meanings. Mm -hmm. It is helpful to have an encyclopedia of behaviors. That's that's useful. But then you need to understand the complexity of the polysemy, the multicultural and multipurpose. And think about this every time you see a gesture, instead of making the, the question that, what does it mean? Change it for what could be the probable meaning. Yeah, it's something I think about a lot, the you know, the, the practical applications of understanding behavior, you know, because for example, you could, you know, we all know the polygraph is, is far from accurate, whatever the, you know, the accepted range mm. of accuracy mm. is like, you know, 60 to 70 something percent, whatever that range is um, of being, of being accurate. I mean, it also gets a lot of, you know, a good amount of false positives too. Um, but it, but it's interesting thinking yeah. about like, how would something be useful? You know, what, even if something was say like say it was ninety five percent accurate, like would we still want to use that for like a legal mm. purpose, knowing that you know because we we say in our legal system, uh, you know we'd rather have a hundred guilty people go free than you know convict one innocent person wrongly. Uh, you know what what exactly is the the range of of accuracy where we would base big important decisions, life changing decisions on something like this? So it's something I often think about is how can we use some of these things knowing that they're they're less reliable in a practical sense in, in real life and uh one thing that strikes me and I'm, I'm curious what you think is is that you know when when something is highly variable and, and you have to make quick decisions and that would include uh you know things like conversation interviews um it would include things like poker you know these things these decision points that are that come very quickly and and could and can vary a lot and that you're kind of forced to make quick decisions about where to focus your time or what decision to make. Uh, that those are places where you can use uh, behavioral information to, you know, direct your 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 train of, you know, say your train of questioning or your poker decisions, where decisions could go either way. And there are decisions that don't, you know, don't involve like affecting someone else in a life changing way, like changing your interrogation thing based on something you think you've noticed isn't going to, you know, send that person to, to prison wrongly. It's just a, a way for you to change, maybe change your, your line of questioning a, a little bit and, 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 uh, investigate something a little bit more conversationally and, and same in poker, you know, you might base something on, on a decision you, you think is slightly more reliable, uh, than, than not. And, uh, it's just, you know, it's just a poker decision. So, uh, th those are the kinds of things I think about when it comes to you know, and and also the interpersonal kind of things too, like you know, um, reading reading an audience better mm -hmm. at work or something. You know, that those those aren't gonna those aren't gonna negatively impact their life. It's just might be a way you slightly change something. You know, if you if you see something where uh, uh, that that might be meaningful. But yeah, th those are my thoughts about the practical benefit in the in people's day to day lives, kind of thing. I hope listeners uh, uh, listen this part because there is a lot of practical applications. And there is two ways of uh, answering your question, I think. One is with uh, the explanation and one with an anecdote. And I will start with the explanation. Um, we need to understand uh, which is the context of application of the knowledge you have on nonverbal communication. It's not the same to apply it on, uh, on the court, on the judicial system, than applying it in a conversation with a friend uh, during uh, drinking a beer or uh, mm -hmm. at uh, an interview 
with a colleague or a presentation when you are explaining the profits of the organization. It's not the same because mm -hmm. the consequences of the decisions you take are not going to be equal. So mm. I will argue that we need to consider what we know for a fact. What's the science behind all what we know on nonverbal communication? So if you understand not everything that has been published, but the holistic approach on the theories and the advances we have, I will argue that we are not able yet, based on the empirical evidence, to make judicial judgments, uh, judgments based on nonverbal communication. Make uh, guiltability judgments on this is not the best way to proceed. I mean, there, there was a debate between uh, Albert Breich, which is the most uh, known uh, publisher, article, uh, researcher on lie detection. I think he has over 200 articles, which is impressive, to say the least. And uh, Vincent Deneau, a colleague and a friend of mine from Canada, and the, the first one argues that the world communication is so ambiguous, uh, ambiguous that you better uh, forget it and don't use it in the court because it leads to worse lie detection. And Vincent argued that thinking behavior is only useful for lying or for detecting lies or veracity is a way of really reducing the problem because behavior can talk or at least show information that is available for interpretation on personality, emotions, cognitions, attitudes, what we, what we have talked today. So you can use it to try to make, your, make up your mind, to think about the person, but using it as a certified way of saying that you know what the person is feeling or thinking, oh, based on his face, he's not feeling guilty, that is a problem. You could say that, There's a probability to me that that behaviors are not related to feeling guilty. But you need to leave out some probabilities for making errors because we are error prone. We have a lot of biases. Uh, for instance, the Dunning-Kruger effect uh, for these pseudo experts is very common. Uh, the least they know, the more bold their assertions. Mm -hmm. But also the, ex the expectancy bias, the confirmation bias that If we want to feel that the person is guilty, we are going to find the gestures that will at least show something related to them. So mm -hmm. I think that we need to be very careful to understand the consequence, also the literature, and based on that, decide where are you going to apply this content. And I apply it. I apply numerical communication every day of my life. I cannot take it out of my tools of communication. And this happens to me yesterday. Yesterday was my birthday. So I went to buy some books as Happy a birthday. way of, thank you very much, as a way of uh, thanking or celebrating it. I want books. So I went to a bookstore for the first time. I didn't know the person that worked there. So that's, that's a huge, important point. And we started talking. And I spent 10 minutes talking about how was his work? Uh, how did he know that the book I was looking for was not here and the editorial could not bring it today or they, they didn't have it and it didn't sell well. Uh, I was trying to look for a, a Robert Caldini book. So after a, a while, I decided to buy another book, two of Steven Pinker, and we started talking about psychology and 
I spent 40 minutes talking with the owner of this uh, bookstore and he started explaining to me his whole life, uh, his recent separation, his divorce, uh, his future, his uh, mental, uh, his health problems. Uh, mm -hmm. He showed me photographs of, of his latest trips to Brazil. And so a lot of things. But all this was possible because I understood that he had a certain kind of communication, more dominant, and I adjust myself to complement that with a non-verbal behavior of more submissive and open stance of listening. Mm -hmm. And uh, with time, and this is the crazy thing, he asked his uh, daughter to go buy a, a cake to celebrate my birthday. So <laughs> 15 minutes later, we were gathered, the, the, the three or four we were there, Uh, and they uh, chanted, they, they they sing the happy birthday without knowing my name, and we eat a cake together. And I think that if I haven't applied non-verbal communication skills, which is not a way of trying to gain the upper hand, I was trying to uh, have a good conversation, trying to understand who he was, what his problems were, and have a a, a better understanding of him and connecting. Connect, and yeah. we ended up in an, in an impressive and very strange position. But these things... Sometimes, not always, of course, happens to me because of how I do apply numerical communication. And, and I'm not saying this is the science. I know the literature. I know there are some constants. I think we need to look for constants rather than laws of behavior. There is no law of gravity in numerical communication. Mm -hmm. You need to look, look for constant tendencies. And I know for a fact that when you complement the behaviors of others, There's usually more uh, amicable interactions, even with chimpanzees, when there is a alpha and a beta interacting. These uh, displays activities, these submissive signals tend to uh, reduce the stress of the conversation. So I apply it with the purpose of connecting with other people. Mm -hmm. And this is not the first time it happens to me. And I want people to understand that you can improve your relationships with nonverbal communication. Usually not with the simplistic approach of looking for these subtle gestures, the adapters, or the unconscious gestures of microexpressions, rather improving your skills, your expressive skills, and your sensitivity or interpersonal skills. It takes time. And as you explain it, I think in other words, um, sometimes you need to use your intuition. But intuition only works if it's trained. Intuition by intuition itself It's good and it is not good. But if you train yourself, you're going to be able to take uh, quick decisions with your intuition. And that's, for instance, what uh, firefighters that have 30 years of experience know when there is something amiss. And I recall uh, an example, I think it was from David Epstein's book, Range, marvelous book, read it, uh, how uh, generalists triumph in a specialized world that a, a firefighter noted that there was not enough heat or warmth um, in the uh, department they were at the moment. So he decided to, to tell his colleagues, let's go out now. And a couple of seconds later, the floor of the, the department collapsed mm. because the fire came from below. He made an intuitive call. He didn't thought about it. He knew based on his experience and knowledge on the matter. 
and took that decision as quickly as he could. Well, with nonverbal communication, you need to train your intuition to make these kind of calls. You're going to get a lot of uh, misses, but you're also going to get a lot of hits. Yeah, I think you you've brought up some great points that I I want to touch on a couple of them. I think there can be skepticism from people about the you know using uh, interpreting behavior in in social or, or uh, interpersonal situations. Some people can have the kind of skeptical opinion of you know there's something exploitative about that or something unnatural or something. But I think mm-hmm. it's missing the point that you know adjusting ourselves to other people's mood and matching their mood and being attuned to them. It's just something we do as humans. So, you know, like, for example, if a friend comes to you and they're in a, they're, they're in a sad mood, you know, you don't talk in a happy mood, you, you match their exactly. emotions. So it's not, it's not like we're doing, it's something exploitative. It's more just amplifying something we already do. And, you know, a little bit of conscious training on these things isn't, isn't really any qualitatively different than the random, you know, unconscious training that we learned growing up because we learned some of these things through socialization and our parents and such. And it's just accentuating a little bit more of that human ability that we have. And I think, I think that's important because I think some people can look at the behavior bullshitters of the world and think, well, I don't want to be like them, you know, Mm. but that's missing the, the nuance. It's kind of taking a polarized view of the situation where, uh, yeah, there are some, some major bullshitters out there that, that focus on like exploitative things and use bad information, but it's, you know, there's also, a, a range of, of skills that you can accentuate in yourself, you know, to, to get better at connecting with people, to get better at reading people. Uh, so I did want to mention that. Uh, and I also want to say, you know, your, your focus on the consequences of your actions is very important. For example, if I'm sitting with a colleague and I get a sense through reading their, you know, their body language that they're repressing some anger towards me, you know, that, that, that they're angry with me, upset with me, and I change my approach to them or my conversation with them based on that. Like that's, there's not really a big downside to that. Like if anything, I'm going to be more friendly to them or something uh, more accommodating. It's not the same as like, you know, if I was interviewing someone and I decided to base a decision on whether to hire them or not based on some small piece of nonverbal information, like that has big consequences and you you should be very humble about, you know, (laughs) you should think about the consequences of your, of your decisions and basing them on, you know, small pieces of information. And uh, so I think that's a, yeah, that's a very important point because I think that's where things go wrong is people taking these ideas and applying them in situations where they really do have big effects on people, whether interviews, interrogations, you know, TSA mm. kind of stuff, uh, security kind of stuff versus, you know, recognizing that there's a lot of variance there and we should be humble and, and, and aware of the complexity in these, in these uh, scenarios. Yeah. Mm. You know, two things are very important. Motives, the reasons why people use this uh, knowledge or skills. And secondly, uh, it happens to me quite uh, several times that people tell me, hey, I've told you a lot of things and I usually don't speak about these things. And it's like, yeah, I know. Because gestures and or behaviors are windows of opportunity. And if you intervene with a good question, about them, not mentioning, hey, I have seen you frowning and you may be angry. No, no, that doesn't work. Almost never. Maybe, just maybe, and psychotherapy, depending on how you approach uh, the, your patients. But usually the best way to proceed is indirectly saying something like, hey, if you see a, a gesture of impatience, you may say, 
I have been talking like uh, for 10 minutes. Why don't you share with me how, what you think? Right. And that's a window of opportunity. And if you choose the correct or a good intervention, verbal intervention, it's like um, a key for a lock. It opens new spaces of conversations mm -hmm. that you weren't allowed to enter if you haven't seen the, the behavior and used that intervention. So in my experience, I will tell people to be very attentive of, on, on, on the signals and try to develop verbal skills also, as well as non-verbal skills, to improve the possibilities of the conversations you have. And the thing is going to happen to you, and it happened to me, and I have seen it with my students, that people are going to feel better around you. And that's maybe one of the most important things that people want to spend more time with you and you enjoy spending time with them because they don't feel they are being analyzed or scrutinized with the, the, the eyes. And no, no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, if you see something, you're going to try to use it to improve the conversation and improve your relationship. And that's, I think, the best thing we can try to aim with this knowledge. That was behavior expert Alan Crowley, who goes by the handle Sinverba Online. You can learn more about him at his website, sinverba.com. He's also got an Instagram channel, a YouTube channel, and a Twitter account under his Sinverba handle. Most of Alan's content is in Spanish, but one great video he has in English is titled The Facial Expression of Cognitive States. I'll include some links to Alan's sites and accounts on my website, behavior-podcast.com, in the blog post entry for this episode. This has been the People Who Read People podcast with me, Zach Elwood. You can learn more about this podcast at behavior-podcast.com. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. The more listeners this podcast gets, the more I'm encouraged to do more interviews. Thanks for listening. Music by Small Skies. <laughs>